Welcome to the final episode of African Media Thermometer. I'm Paul McNally. This is a four-part podcast series taking the temperature of the media industry and health reporting in Africa, particularly during the time of COVID-19. This show is brought to you by Cast Media Africa and produced by Volume. Cast Media Africa is the media program of Sub-Sahara Africa for the German Konrad Adenauer Stiftung. During this series, we have spoken to some of the top journalists and editors in Africa about how they are reporting on health during COVID-19. The COVID-19 pandemic has placed a spotlight on the role of health reporting in newsrooms. Health journalism since the rise of the pandemic has become one of the central parts of the media. It touches on all issues of everyone's lives, from politics to economics to science. With many media outlets closing doors due to the pandemic, the sustainability of health news and reporting is now more important than ever. In this episode, we share highlights from the Cast Media Africa series of online discussions where they looked at the quality of health journalism in Africa. This is Christoph Plata, the director of Cast Media Africa. We at Cast Media Africa had intended to organize a conference on health journalism here in Johannesburg and in South Africa, in South Africa, because we felt that health journalism was underestimated in the in the overall journalism uh, community. Uh, here you found you here you had experts. Here you had people who really knew a lot about all kinds of health issues, and this topic or the health topics are becoming ever more important with growing middle classes on the African continent. And with the rise of diseases like obesity, HIV, AIDS, depression, you name it. Little did we know that we would um, find ourselves in having to reorganize and focus um, in the online conferences that we did and in the podcast that we did, the whole topic of COVID-19. And I think in the wider journalism community, we have realized that uh, health journalism is very important. And we have also realized that people who might be good political analysts are not necessarily good health journalists because in the pandemic, during the pandemic, in media, we saw uh, the people who actually knew what they were talking about. And we saw those ones who were grappling with the issues, who were grappling with the details and who were showing a lack of uh, scientific uh, and medical knowledge. So I think health journalism will come out of this whole crisis uh, strengthened. And I think that's what we are trying to bring about, uh, to organize with uh, these podcasts and with the conferences that we held, and we will continue on that path. The first webinar was called Access to Medicines and Treatment During COVID-19 and Beyond. The keynote address was by human rights lawyer and the founder of the Health Justice Initiative, Fatima Hassan. Here she unpacks why access to medicine, treatment and patent law reform is so important for African countries and global communities. In the context of COVID-19, access to healthcare and access to affordable diagnostic and therapeutic advances especially a vaccine. And remember, there's about 150 vaccine candidates in various stages of investigation. These will be critical if we are to meaningfully manage this pandemic. But access requires political will and affordability. And in this context, both are heavily influenced by those who hold the intellectual property rights 
to these potential life-saving advances. In other words, the patent holders. Ordinarily, the idea behind awarding patents is that it encourages and rewards much-needed innovation for a limited period of time. The patent holder is given the right by law to exclusively manufacture that product or sub-license it and determine a price in any country where it is patented. At times, a patent holder may even decide not to exercise its exclusivity rights and share its technology with others with either a royalty fee or for free. However, patent production doesn't always produce optimal innovation levels. Recent reports actually show quite the opposite. Health product patent holders are gaming the system, using patent rights to evergreen patents, having rights indefinitely, to build monopolies, which in turn permit high or excessive prices for the benefit of the patent holder and its shareholders, and to profiteer of public health crises, while the innovation for treating and preventing key diseases that could assist millions of vulnerable and sick people is missing, and access to essential and life-saving diagnostics and therapeutics for many chronic conditions is limited or neglected. Trade delegations such as the World Trade Organization, WTO, exist to regulate international trade between nations. The WTO's rules are set up based on a legal agreement on trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights. Now, that's a mouthful, but it stands for TRIPS between all member nations. There are certain flexibilities that exist under TRIPS to, in theory, ensure affordable and equitable access to healthcare. And people will always talk about the TRIPS flexibilities. And it would guarantee you access to healthcare, including medicines, especially in a time of a health crisis. But this flexibility, people should remember, was largely prompted by the activism of the historical global HIV-AIDS medicine access movement contained in what is now commonly called the Doha Declaration. The South African government, with its advanced constitutional protections and antitrust laws, has admitted that TRIP flexibilities that exist under the WTO, which would enable access to healthcare, are not widely used, especially by developing countries in Africa. Here is Omanyane Regege, the executive director of Section 27 in South Africa. Section 27, my organization, um, has been doing work around access to medicines for many years. And one of the key things around access to medicines and the patent law um, framework is the kind of legal framework that we have in South Africa. Um, and the first thing to say is that we have a, a constitution that guarantees the right to access healthcare services. Um, and the courts in South Africa have said that that right does include access to affordable medicines as well. Um, and that the government has um, an obligation uh, and a duty to actually regulate the private healthcare sector, the pharmaceutical sector, to ensure that it is able to deliver on its obligations to ensure the progressive realization of the right to healthcare services. These issues have led to a direct confrontation with local and global patent regimes. We need to have an industrial policy that actually encourages the development of that industry so that we are not constantly reliant on um, the manufacturing and innovation that happens around the world 
I think for all African countries, we need to probe what it is, where we are developmentally and what we need to do as, as individual countries to ensure that the legal framework catches up and then thereafter push for the implementation of that to ensure that we're not just handing out patents to every company that comes through the borders and just increasing monopolies um, to the extent that we then don't have access to affordable medicines. Um, so there's a real sense that there's an urgent need to reform um, our current legal framework. Um, and of course, those new laws would then have to deal with this balance between public health and the private rights of companies, um, but also understanding that there is that kind of need to ensure greater access to healthcare services and medicines. Media houses and newsrooms play an important role in the fight to access healthcare through reporting on issues in the sector. In our second discussion called Money Matters, Newsrooms, Sustainability and Opportunities during the times of COVID-19, we uncover the political economy of funding and business models in the media sector. We hear now from Idris Akimbajo, the managing editor of Premium Times in Abuja, Nigeria, about how they sustain their health reporting during these unprecedented times. We had three major concerns about premium times development and journalism development as a whole. We were concerned about storytelling, we were concerned about story distribution, and we were concerned about sustainability. Uh, eventually, we settled to be an online-only newspaper, uh, and we were also concerned about the fact that newspaper circulation was in decline and people were no longer reading the newspapers. And we wanted a large audience considering the large population of Nigeria. In terms of sustainability, we were concerned about how to finance our journalism. We were also concerned about how to get readers uh, to pay for the content. To ensure that the general Nigerian public continues to have access to health reporting, Premium Times adopted a mixed financial model approach that is centered around innovation. The mixed model is centered around eight areas where they try to finance the kind of journalism that they do. We try to raise funds uh, uh, through philanthropy and donor support. We try to raise funds through events. We try to raise funds through donations. We have an, a membership program for which we also raise funds. We get some funding from advertising. We get some funding from book publishing. We get funding from journalism training and get funding from partnerships. We are also now considering limited paywall, but only for exclusive content uh, and for our archives. Health journalism, of course, is crucial to us. Uh, we fund the health journalism desk uh, through the means stated earlier, uh, but mainly through three major uh, uh, ways. We believe it is essential that the general public have access to the kind of news that we want to tell. And so we drop the idea of limiting people uh, uh, to have access to our stories just because they don't have the funds to do so. And so our content is for now totally free. In relation to this, in order to fund both their health desk and newsroom, Premium Times has created a comprehensive membership model program based on feedback they received from their readers. Our target is to raise an average of $5 a month from 50,000 members. Our target annually is about a billion naira, uh, 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 which we believe will be more than enough to sustain our newsroom operations for a year. So it's really in its sitting phase, but we have a lot of hope 
Uh, I read that some of them in Nigeria who are saying they want us to expand the membership beyond diaspora, uh, but also to Nigerians residing in Nigeria. But for now, our primary target is the Nigerians in diaspora. The East African Center for Investigative Reporting is registered as a non-profit under Ugandan law. Managing partner and editor at the center, Ivan Okuda, tells us about how they stay afloat. We currently have funding from the Open Society Initiative for Eastern Africa. But in terms of um, the long-term vision, uh, we hope to explore other uh, avenues of raising revenue uh, to support uh, the center. That would mean, for example, exploring largely what uh, the premium terms is doing. Drawing inspiration from publications such as the Premium Times in Nigeria, the East African Center for Investigative Reporting is tailor-suited to do health reporting for the context and circumstances in Uganda. The Ugandan market has been waiting for something like this. And essentially because one would have to look at the political economy of the media in Uganda. Um, We have a duopolistic market in the sense that you have two dominant uh, TV stations, which are private, um, they derive most of their revenue, if not all their revenue, from uh, advertising, which advertising is dwindling. Then you have two major newspapers. One is a government newspaper. At least the government has not less than 51% shareholding. Um, and then the other uh, 49% shares are held by the public on the stock market. And so that, that gives you an idea about the editorial direction in terms of uh, things like independence. And then you have another major newspaper that is part of um, a larger media uh, conglomerate, the National Media Group, which is the Daily Monitor, which I wrote for for, for more than for almost ten years um, as a startup journalist. So, if if you are looking for in-depth reporting, um, expert analysis, uh, new approaches to storytelling that explore opportunities like uh, data and graphics, podcasts, uh, popular art, and and things like that, you're certainly going to struggle to find that kind of content in in the current media ecosystem. Advertising, which is the main source of revenue for many media houses in Uganda, has been unfortunately decimated due to the impact of COVID-19. What that also means in terms of the political economy of the media is that there's going to be less and less independent reporting, um, essentially because the advertisers are now much more stronger than they were, say, 10 years ago. Um, they know that the, the newspapers especially are, are desperate to, to keep floating. For, for independent journalists like myself and, and my colleagues um, with whom I started the center, you basically would struggle to find breathing space in, in that ecosystem and, and, and really do stories that excite you and, 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 and make um, impact uh, on the market and, and in the eyes and hearts of the audience. Marcus Lowe is editor of Spotlight NSP, a media publication based in Cape Town. We specialize in public interest health journalism. We are exclusively donor funded at the moment. We have about four donors Um, one that's relatively large, and that makes it a bit difficult because it means we're quite dependent on one donor. Um, And ideally, you'd have more of a diverse funding pool. Um, We have a mandate to do public interest journalism. So we write about HIV, TB, um, COVID-19, the state of our healthcare system, 
the type of work we do ranges from investigative journalism to data journalism to um, kind of frontline accounts of what's happening to people, what it's like, um, what struggles people have in realizing their right to healthcare. Donor funding has great economic benefits for media audiences compared to other models of funding, Marcus says. Anyone can access our content. For donors, it's useful to think about that you support the production of journalism, but you also subsidize the fact that anyone can access that journalism. While depending on large donors does come with risks and may threaten your sustainability, there is a plus side to it. Um, Donor funding, um, from an editorial perspective, frees you up to focus on what's important in our view, producing compelling public interest journalism. If you're dependent on people buying your publication, if you have to sell a newspaper every day, there's pressure to sensationalize at times. Um, If you have a subscriber base you need to keep happy, then there's a risk that you might start publishing the things your subscribers want. Um, On the other hand, as we've seen this year, if you have the kind of economic shock that was brought about by COVID-19, then a lot of commercial publications can't survive. So in a way, donor funding, at least in the short term, has sheltered us from that um, potential risk. Donors, though, may come to the table with their own agendas. Um, My advice to anybody in this field would be to first be very clear internally on what your priorities are, what kind of journalism you want to do, and then to go out to find donors who share that vision and not to be tempted into doing it the other way around. In our final discussion, our panelists discuss the state of health reporting in three African countries, and they explore the challenges they've faced because one, we've been in a global pandemic, and two, because of fake news. Africa Check's Nigeria editor, David Ajikobi, says you can't divorce the state of healthcare in Nigeria from its political history. To explain about the state of health journalism in Nigeria, you'd have to look at Nigeria's political history to start with. I mean, decades of, um, of military rule have actually affected media practice in the country. And uh, uh, what we saw was like, there's a lot of focus on politics and other things. And so, uh, so even after democracy came in 1999, last week was democracy in 1999, it was nice to have a health correspondent in a newsroom. And um, so I think about five, ten years ago, we saw that uh, with the revenue uh, um, um, streams changing and um, media models changing, a few newsrooms began to flesh out their health desks. So we begin to see we began to see a higher pool of uh, skill sets in the uh, in health uh, space in the country. Even with newsrooms changing to accommodate this growing need for health reporting, media houses were not ready to weather a global health crisis coupled with fake news. And then we've had COVID-19. And what that has done also is that we've had newsrooms deployed every other person on the political or any other desk to cover COVID-19. And also that has affected the quality of reporting that we've seen in COVID-19. There are very few broadcast journalists that focus on health reporting in Kenya, says one of the few health broadcast journalists for Ebru TV, Winnie Lubembe. 
um, you would see a lot of journalists, health journalists, yes, but more on the print as compared to broadcast. They are there, but very, very few. Because people were saying, you know what, health is scientific. Health, is, it's, it's difficult. How do we, uh, you know, get, let's say, information, the numbers, and then disseminate it in a way that it's very easy, um, you know, for even the normal person to understand? Because according to our editor, um, you have to tell the story from the bottom up. There has been a bit of improvement in the country where we can see a number of journalists, um, you know, coming up and, and specializing on, on health reporting, which is really, really good. Winnie says the quality of healthcare reporting is diminished when journalists themselves do not understand healthcare and its systems before reporting on issues that affect everyday people. Once you as a journalist do not understand, um, let's say, what the story is all about and, and the data and, and even the, you know, the, the, the terms, it becomes even difficult for you to write your story. And once you cannot write your story well, then it becomes even difficult for that person, um, you know, down there to understand what the story is all about. So at the end of the day, you have minimal impact, really. Health broadcast journalism in the country, um, we're trying. We, we are really, really trying. And, and, and like I say, right now, everybody's a health broadcast journalist. So again, it affects the quality um, of the reports that we give. The HIV pandemic set the precedent for health reporting in South Africa, says Laura Lopez-Gonzalez. Laura is currently working freelance and is a formidable journalistic talent. She took the time to explain the state of health journalism in the time of COVID-19. Going back to sort of the, sort of the dark days of HIV in South Africa, I think you had a lot of journalists, uh, health journalists, cut their teeth um, during that time. And I think it was important in kind of giving health journalism sort of a crash course in, in some very tough science, and also giving our scientists a crash course in how to be real sort of vocal advocates for their patients. But um, as David and Winnie said, you know, when COVID hit, everyone became a health journalist, which means that we had the biggest sort of um, you know, news outlet in, in Africa, which is News24, every single reporter was on, on the COVID beat. Um, and I do think that um, some journalists did amazing getting to grips with like a very difficult subject. And I think also brought in expertises that sometimes are not fortes for health journalism. I think we could do far better in tracking money. Um, so it was very good, I think, to see the investigative guys uh, come in on that, that front. Lara says that the 24-hour news cycle in South African newsrooms poses a challenge for health reporting during a health crisis. Because everybody was on that beat, so I think there was a real high pressure on journalists to be the first to get things out. And that, um, you know, and scientists themselves were saying stuff, kind of theories left, right, and center that were very difficult to fact check. But I think that sort of 24-hour news cycle, let's be first, that's a pressure that I think it, it pushes people and I think it pushes systems. Um, and I think that that uh, is something that we've seen not really do us a whole lot of favors during this pandemic. Research shows that there is a direct correlation between health reporting in the media and health literacy in societies. And the lack of upskilling of health desks in newsrooms has dire consequences on citizens and their health knowledge. Here's David from Africa Check in Nigeria again. During the Ebola virus outbreak here in Nigeria, more people died consuming salt water, ingesting salt water, than the actual Ebola itself. So it's, it's uh, and when I try to explain about, talk about how I health misinformation is a big problem and how I health reporting needs to be, you know, upscaled across, it's because I can be like, mm, I don't care about politics, but I think that everybody cares about their health. 
And then yeah, uh, for us as fact checkers and you know people who are concerned about misinformation and disinformation, we look at it from a theoretical perspective, which is the health belief model. But we think that uh, people should upscale, we expect the industry should upscale its skill in health reporting. Social media has fostered an environment where fake news and misinformation flourishes, even when journalists have all the facts. It's tough to rectify a story once fake news has spread. Here's Winnie from Ebrew TV in Kenya again. You have the facts, but then again, a majority has been posted on social media. And since everybody has access to social media, we tend to believe that. Um, Even on WhatsApp groups, you see a message and then it's so easy for you to forward without even reading it. (laughs) Okay, so that spreads very, very fast. And and by the time you come in with verified um, information, already the damage has been done. So it becomes like twice or thrice um, you know, the burden for one, informing people, two, giving facts, and three, demystifying the myth that already has been, has been spread you know, um, through social media. Newsrooms across the African continent should work harder to foster better health reporting through editorial structures. Here's Laura from South Africa again. If you're the kit reporter who's under a lot of pressure to produce and you get thrown a, a press release that says that we've cured HIV, which is not true, but this happened like, I think, two years ago. You don't know any better than to publish that or to try to run that, but shouldn't somebody on the desk, shouldn't your sub-editor, shouldn't there be other people who can help support you in a newsroom to help you kind of stop it and sort of take stock of what's going on? And I really benefited when I was a general reporter um, because I had news editors who had been former health journalists. So they understood the need that some sort of stories were going to take longer, that there was a value in waiting to provide a more in-depth story versus a quicker turnaround. So I, I think that we can also look at, at the sort of structures within our newsrooms that can support uh, this kind of journalism. Now let's hear from Poncho Polani, a former CAS scholar and a prominent thinker in the health journalism space. Her expertise is why we worked with her on these webinars. As someone who has been very passionate about health journalism as a health journalist, but also as a media scholar, I had the pleasure of co-convening this conference with CAS Media Africa. And for me, it was quite important to highlight where the continent is in terms of its own development of health journalism and where we're going, you know. I think COVID-19 offered an, an opportunity for a lot of journalists to dabble with health journalism. But this conference also gave us a time to think about what it means to be a health journalist on the African continent and what are some of the challenges that newsrooms that focus on health news uh, find themselves facing. And what I'm completely proud of is that even before the pandemic, even before uh, cases started happening in South Africa or uh, before the World Health Organization um, declared uh, COVID-19 a public health emergency of international concern, CAS Media and I were already sitting and thinking about this conference. It wasn't because of COVID what made this conference important, but the fact that this is a conversation that we needed to have either way. A lot of the times, health journalism is often neglected or not taken seriously. And what COVID did is that it it highlighted and catapulted the uh, the idea of talking and discussing the quality of health journalism, how 
you produce it in terms of money, budget, and some of the challenges that health journalists or media organizations that focus on health journalism face um, was important. And it was important before, during, and even after COVID. This has been the last episode in the series from Cast Media Africa about how health journalism is adapting to the COVID-19 crisis. Do listen to episodes one, two, and three, where we have spoken with journalists and editors in Africa about health journalism and the challenges that came with reporting during the COVID-19 pandemic. Cast Media Africa supports organizations and journalists very much like the ones you have heard here today and in previous episodes. You can find more information on our website, www.cast.de slash mediaafrica. That's www.cast.de slash mediaafrica. And interact with our Twitter handle, at Cast Media. My name is Paul McNally. This podcast has been produced by Volume. Goodbye, and thanks for listening.